Hey, Piers, it's Michelle. I've got some exciting news. The Piers Project has just produced a podcast for Red by Modi Body, the iconic period underwear brand for tweens and teens. In this new podcast series, The Red Tales, we share stories celebrating the messy and iconic parts of our teenage years and bodies. Every fortnight, we'll be joined by a young Aussie who isn't afraid to open up, laugh and celebrate the time they got their first period, stood up to their first bully and recovered from their first heartbreak. So make sure to tune in now to our podcast for Modi Body, The Red Tales, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or just head straight to the link in this episode's description. Now let's get into this episode. This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, Peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, Peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveler, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. If you've ever believed that you needed to be perfect in order to start a successful business, this episode is for you. Our next guest never thought he would be accepted into university, let alone start a successful business. But his determination to prove others wrong and a series of imperfect actions led him to become the winner of the 2019 Telstra Business Awards. I'm super excited to welcome Ali Terai onto the show today. Ali is the CEO and founder of Future Golf, Australia's fastest growing golf community. I'm thrilled to talk to Ali today about his story, the steps he took to start Future Golf, and his biggest takeaways from his entrepreneurial journey to date. For those of you who haven't yet, Make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these amazing millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with the awesome Ali Terai. Holly, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. It's already fun and I'm absolutely pumped to get this thing kicked off. Awesome. Cool. So, you know, you and I connected late last year over LinkedIn and when I looked into you and all the awesome work that you're doing in in kind of the sports space and also just your incredible story, I knew I had to have you come on the podcast. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you for having me. It's, um, I know we've tried to sort this out for a little while and it's awesome that we found this date and let's get stuck into it. 
Love it. Awesome. <laughs> cool. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, awesome. So at the moment, um, the key thing that I do, I'm the CEO and founder of a business called Future Golf. Now, Future Golf is all about getting younger people into golf. So I'm not sure if you play golf yourself, but I don't. <laughs> the, the average age of a golfer sits somewhere around 60 years old. And that I think could be a problem for the game longer term. So we wanted to create a golf community, a membership, something that was a bit more flexible that got younger people into the sport. So, and it all just started as a little passion project as a lot of things do. It was never meant to be a business. Um, It was meant to be the thing that was started to learn about business to actually then go into a real business. And as fate has it, um, five years later, six years later now, uh, it is um, a a business and a community that's really passion-driven, purpose-driven, and uh, it's just been a really fun ride and journey. Mm. Oh, huge. I cannot wait to dive deeper into that, Ali. But I guess I want to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, where did you grow up? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Yeah, cool. So, so going really far back. So I was born in Canada. Uh, my parents were born in Africa or in Tanzania and Kenya. Uh, we're Indian through generations and then moved over to Australia when I was four years old. So we started off in Ringwood and then most of my childhood was spent in Sassafras, which is a small little town in the Dandenongs, you know, I'm pretty sure it's like Australia's capital of like Devonshire tea and <laughs> old people. And that's kind of where the journey started and then sort of lived in the hills um, and I've always kind of stayed around that area. Very, very tree, tree close proximity, if that's a sentence or a word, I don't think it is, but but that's sort of where the, the upbringing was. And uh, it's awesome. It's still a real big part of who I am. And one of the cool things about essentially growing up in like a country town, even though it technically is Melbourne, is that you build really cool relationships, really close-knit community, and uh, and that's been a real big part of um, my story. Huge. I think, yeah, I just think where you came from and kind of how you grew up, it so does shape what you ultimately do. And I think for you it was interesting because looking into you and looking into the fact that you kind of – you know, you struggled a bit in, in primary school and whatnot and you were almost saw yourself as the outcast yep. and all that, you know, and then hearing kind of it from it now that it was a tight community. You know, how do you think, you know, take us back to that time. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you? How, you know, how did you navigate yourself during the early days? Yeah, well, well it was interesting, right? Like I think obviously uh, being like a son of a migrant and then coming over in an environment like that. So there wasn't many people that really looked like me. So it was, it didn't take long for me to sound like most of the other people that I was around, but definitely I didn't look the same. And I think that is a challenge, especially when you're a kid, you know, and, and I think now it's probably a little bit different, especially in Melbourne, which is quite multicultural, but growing up like my primary school, we had 10 people in our class. And I remember going through like grade four, grade five, and I'd moved to this new school after we moved from Ringwood and they had this thing and like, they were like, you're not an original crisp, right? So I assumed that that was because I looked different, but it was actually just because I came to the school late and I wasn't there from the start. But these are all the little things that when you're a kid and, you know, whether you're different or diverse from whatever um, your your background is. I think they're some of the challenges that that people do face. But 
I think it also is something that really develops you. You know, so I I looked at trying to figure out that environment as one of my real big early sort of skill sets, if you call it, because I'm like, well, there's no point feeling sorry for myself because I'm different or being a victim or blaming other people. It's like, all right, how do you go into this environment and then actually figure it out, you know, make friends, build relationships, bridge some of those gaps and even potentially as I got older, like educate a lot of my friends on, all right, well, you know, people are different. And and I think that, that that's been, um, yeah, a really cool part of the journey. But yeah, it did come with its own challenges. And I think a lot of kids have whether it's bullying or, you know, feeling alienated or not feeling part of their tribe. You know, I think it's, it's a really big thing and probably why even now, even with Future Golf, like building a community that's aligned to a passion, there's probably something that does link to that. And even speaking to, to younger kids, I think it's really important about showing them that, okay, that you can start from one point, but that doesn't mean that that's always who you are, you know, and, and that's probably been a really big thing in my story is transformation and change. Uh, so many different evolutions. Like even if I ask my wife, what is it that I do or who am I? It's, it's quite ever changing and evolving, right? Like it's, I've worked in tertiary education. I've had a number of different jobs, sales, and now entrepreneurship, speaking, consulting, advisory. And I think that evolution and change, especially for the younger audience that are listening today is, is really critical today that you can keep changing and evolving and it doesn't really take all that much, all that long, you know, and trying things is kind of like the spice of life, I guess. It's the spice of life. <laughs> I love it. No, I couldn't agree more. And I think so many of us can get caught up and we just think if we studied this one thing or if we had this kind of degree or whatever it was, or if we didn't even have a degree, then we're in a certain block, you know, there's a certain place in society that we sit, there's a certain thing we should be doing. And I guess what I love about you is exactly what you just said. You know, it's the fact that you were able to meld and change and have all these kind of multiple career paths and journeys, just that kind of the best, the ones that suited the most with you. So I guess I want to dive a bit deeper into kind of the first, the university days and those that first kind of job out of uni, you know, after kind of navigating the early years of primary school and then high school, what did you think about when you thought about uni and, and that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, well, uni to me was something that I never even really imagined. So going back even a little bit into high school. So after primary school and getting bullied a little bit, then I think I went into high school and I just completely flipped it up. So I'm, like, I'm going to be the rebel. So I started smoking cigarettes when I was about 12 or 13 years old. We started drinking beers. That's what you do when you grow up in a, in a small town. And, and probably from the year seven to like year 10 mark, I was always just on the verge of getting expelled. And then the pivotal moment probably happened when I started selling Chinese cigarettes at school to classmates. So I'd get these really cheap, very average looking, or they actually look quite nice, but they were horrible cigarettes. And I don't know how this happened, but I guess, I guess one of the big things was, so my, my dad was an alcoholic and we, we really, my mum and I'm an only child. So my mum and I, we were always trying to kind of find our escape and I think doing stuff like that, like being a rebel. And that was like my protection mechanism of, all right, well, I'll go, you know, I'll go sell cigarettes at school so I can save up enough money so then we can move out and we can do all these things. Now, obviously at the time I knew that doing things like that is wrong and do not recommend that to, to any young people, but it was part of the circumstances at that time that this was a vehicle out and obviously didn't last that long. So I got caught very quickly. One of my 
clients, um, gave away, could have just kept his mouth shut, but just gave away everything. And then we were sitting there with the principal and the principal was like, look, this is pretty serious. Um, we're probably going to have to call the police. It's time that you maybe looked at other alternative options. So I'm like 14 at this time. I think year 10. I was young when I started school. I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh crap, you know, like this, this isn't ideal, um, you know, to be at this point. And when you're young, things like that feel so super dramatic and they are like, that's pretty serious. Like on the scale of probably teenage, uh, misdemeanors and, and I was sitting there and I'm like, all right, like this isn't great. So then they called up my parents and he called up my dad. My dad started swearing at them. And like this whole thing is this chaotic scene out of like some really weird movie. And, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, all right, well, I'm done here. And then the teacher's like, all right, well, we're probably going to have to call the police. We're, you're obviously we're going to probably look at expelling you. And, and then I was walking out and I just bumped into one of my careers teachers. Um, and she was probably one of the only people that I got along with. Her name was Karen. And she came up and she's like, you know, look, like, what are you doing here? Right now might seem like fun and games, but at some point you're going to regret this. Whether it's not now or in a year or in five years' time, you're going to regret these decisions that you're making and it's going to bite you. Um, and she's like, why don't you take responsibility for your own actions and for once in your life exceed your own expectations? Right. And that was a huge moment because obviously when you're low and you're hitting rock bottom, to have that truth bomb kind of hit you in that in that space it just sort of woke me up so then after that probably for the first time ever I kind of broke down I went and apologized and I was like all right look you know it's not anyone else's fault this is my fault I need to take responsibility for it but I don't know how I'm going to change but I'm going to change you know and then that was kind of the moment where I'm like all right you know that was year 10 and I'm going to try to actually flip this script a little bit. So I didn't do anything too dramatic, but it was like, I think that, that night I went home and I studied for the first time, you know, probably in about four years. And then, then after that, I slowly changed my friendship group. You know, the one that were, you know, the crew that was probably leading me down a different path. I was fortunate enough to meet a really good group of predominantly guys, but also a few awesome girls that I'm still friends with. And, and then we kind of devised our new sort of culture where we're like, all right, well, you know, instead of trying to put each other in a bad situations, let's still have fun, but let's try to actually make some better choices. And then I had a couple of mates that were smarter than I was. And then they showed me the art of studying. Uh, then learned how to speed read, learned a little bit of memory palace. And, and then probably only in year 12, um, with about six months to go, I realized, all right, well, my goal was still probably not to get expelled, but now it's like, all right, well, there's six months left here. Um, a guy, Jim Steins, I don't know if you know who Jim Steins is, but he came out to our school and did an awesome talk and really was a wake up call where he kind of said, you know, like you need to, everyone's got their talents and their unique skill sets. Um, his story is amazing. Um, because he came to Australia as an 18-year-old, had never played AFL football. I think the next year after that, he was runners-up in the best and fairest, won a Brownlee medal, like phenomenal transformation journey. But he gave us a bit of a wake-up call and a call-out and said that you guys are young, but you can still write your own script and your own story. Um, so with six months to go, that's when I really kicked in to gear. I found all the practice exams, went through that process, and you know I was expecting maybe I'd get an ATAR score of like 30 or 40, but just kept studying and ended up getting pretty lucky, got, got a good enough score to get into university. So I went to Monash University and then that was start of the uni journey. So it went from complete disaster, 
nearly being expelled, over, life feeling like it was about to end um, as an ex-cigarette salesman um, <laughs> and my business Poor was business. gone. Yeah. yeah, the business. So the entrepreneurship journey didn't start all that smoothly. Um, and then after that, yeah, went into uni. And, and the funniest part about that is that I didn't even apply for university. It was Karen, my careers teacher that day that came in and she applied without me knowing. And I spoke to her later and she said that, look, I applied for business courses and law courses. I didn't really think you'd get into law, but business, because I'm like, if you do end up in jail, at least these university courses will be able to help you out a little bit. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, thanks, Karen. Like, like that's like some sort of backhanded um, compliment there. But uh, but she was like, she was amazing just to have that person, um, you know, when it all kind of seemed lost to, even without me kind of knowing, um, supporting me through that was really, really important. Huge. Oh my goodness. I'm literally just sitting here listening back and you guys can't really see me, but I'm nodding <laughs> my head. I'm just, my face, my face is going crazy. Facial expressions are happening. Yeah, she's lying. Um, she but, fell asleep. Like, for like <laughs> half <of> that <laughs> no, I just find it so fascinating. I think, I think my question to you is, you know, you had Karen. For those of us who don't, aren't as lucky or, or, or someone's not looking out for us, how can we seek out those mentors, those people mm-hmm. that you that we know will ultimately always believe in us? Yeah, like I think nowadays it's pretty amazing with social media. When, when I speak to, to younger kids, I'm like, God, you've got your Instagram channel. And I'm like, it's, it's really only someone who's a r- real prick that's not going to say or reply back to a teenager, you know, <laughs> and, and to a school kid. So, so I think that it's a different time now where, where accessing your mentors are a lot easier. Books, you know, like I look at the, the impact that a book can have. Like I only really started reading seriously probably about five years ago, six years ago when I started um, Future Golf. Um, probably prior to that, been about 10 years before I'd read a book, you know, after uni, you stop reading. And the value and the return on investment on a book is ridiculous, right? $15, $20. And you get 300 pages off that person's expertise that they've been collecting for a 10 or 20 year period. Like that, that's a mentor in itself. And then obviously there's going to events, you know, like, especially if you're living in Victoria or Melbourne, there's some amazing you know, business events and startup events. Like if you have a passion about something, you can probably find an event somewhere. And that's a really cool place to unlock mentors. And one of one of my good friends, he's, he's amazing. So if he goes and finds mentors, he just makes these really grand gestures, right? So one of his early mentors, he wanted to meet him and he just couldn't get the meeting. He sent him a hundred emails. And then after, I think a little while, he just decided, screw it. I'm going to buy a thousand copies of his book. So he took his life savings and he spent $20,000 and he bought a thousand copies of his mentor's book. And the mentor's like, all right, you got my attention. Um, that, that's an hour meeting. <laughs> and, and they ended up becoming really, really good friends now. And he's done this multiple times with really cool grand gestures where he takes a risk, but it gets the attention of that mentor. And I think, especially for younger people earlier on in their journey, a big part is, is knowing who the right mentor is for you at that time. Right? Like somebody will go and see a massive speaker or an athlete, someone famous, and you've got to understand that their time's so scarce that it's really hard. So maybe you do need a really grand gesture like that. But find the person that's maybe at that next step of where you want to go to. Right? So whether it's starting a business or becoming a better athlete or whatever that skill set is that you want to develop, um, look, look locally first and see who's walked that path, um, I think is probably how I'd look at it. Going back to, to the Karen, I think that was sometimes there's luck, 
you know, you, you get lucky. Um, but I think school is an amazing place where you've got teachers. Like there's going to be someone there that you can connect with. And that environment's designed to help younger people thrive. Same with university. So, so I think putting yourself in situations where the people around you are in your corner or <laughs> um, at least potentially even paid to be in your corner is, is a really good starting point. I love it. It's, it's just so practical and it's such great advice. Um, okay, great. So I want to dive a bit deeper into Monash. Yep. So, you know, another, I'm also a yep. Monash alum. Yep. So there you go. But, you know, after you kind of finished up there, I saw that you had your first kind of real job at Deakin Uni. Yep. And then you ultimately went on to be, I think it was the youngest ever senior executive at Monash University. How, how does that even happen? Talk to us about that time there. Yeah. So, so after I graduated uni, um, I think because I started school early, um, my parents either couldn't afford kindergarten or didn't want to send me there. Um, I ended up finishing uni when I was 20 and then wow. I went, got my first job at Deakin Uni. So I didn't know what I was going to do. And my wife's auntie was working there at the time and she's like, look, we just need help filing some student records. So for six months, I worked in the nursing department and all I did was alphabetize every single file and I loved it. It was the, the greatest <laughs> job ever, like to go through, especially, especially when you got to like the ethnic names and like really similar ethnic names and you'd be like, there's like literally a letter, <coughs> letter splitting us here and I just don't want to get that wrong. So, so I think I went through like, that was my project for three, four months, 1800 or 2000 student records, perfectly sorted in alphabetical order. And then after that, um, they're like, oh, look, we need somebody to help us out with clinical placements. We need somebody to help us out with a bit of marketing. And you're the only person in the age of 50 here. So <laughs> I'm sure you know how to use some sort of internet. Um, and then, and then it just kept kicking off from there. And then obviously I had the business degree. So this is where it came useful because then I started doing a little bit more marketing stuff within Deakin, um, for one of the schools. And then after that, um, I got a job in student recruitment at Monash. So that was going and speaking to students. Um, I still remember my first talk and just thrown in the deep end. I didn't have an idea of the uh, of any of the courses, 715-year-olds sitting out in the audience and I'm just blubbering through this really, really degrade presentation. I'm like, oh, that was one of the, I still remember it. It gives me chills of how scary and embarrassing and awkward that whole experience was. Um, but that was awesome. So going around, I think probably spoke to about 50,000 students over that um, part of my career. And then, then I started working in the medicine faculty at Monash. Um, and then that was more around strategy development, international development, um, and setting up some really big initiatives. So that's kind of how that um, young senior executive part happened, um, where we built out a pretty amazing strategy that, you know, delivered over 200, 300, 350 million dollars over a four year period. What I find interesting about you is I feel like you kind of just, it all kind of just flowed on from the next, you know, you got that one opportunity at Deakin and then, you you know, your business degree came in handy and then Monash, you know, did you ever have a thought of, I've got something I really want to do with my career or I've got a vision of what I want my career to look like and I'm going to try and achieve that or, and I guess for those of us who are struggling with what it is that we want to do, you know, what advice would you give around that? See, I never knew what I wanted to do, but I knew that probably after those teenagers and knowing the kind of pain and uh, fear that came in from there. I knew that I didn't want to do nothing, right? So I never really had a real defined plan, but I always had some sort of direction. And if the opportunity came up, I would trust my nose and then sniff it out as much as I could, right? So, and those things, a lot of them, you know, it's that mixture of timing, luck, and then opportunity, right? And I, I'm going to butcher that saying, but, you know, opportunity 
favours those that are prepared or giving it a crack. Um, or luck, sorry, favours those that are, you know, giving it a crack. And that's kind of what's happened throughout my journey. You know, like there's usually been some sort of intuition or inkling or I've seen something and I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. Uh, maybe we go give that a crack. But that's probably a big part of my DNA and my story is just taking action. And uh, I speak to one of my friends about it and we call it taking imperfect action, right? So instead of overthinking it and planning it, I'll generally just jump into it in some degree. So usually low risk, but I'll jump into it and and then just see how it pans out and realize that the failure isn't personal because that's inevitable. You know, it's going to suck the first few times. But then after that, I love the process of figuring out, all right, like how do you then distill this, whatever it is, and then figure it out? Like what's the, what's the core skill set that you need? What are the core actions that you need? How do you model someone that's done it before you? And then that's probably um, that evolution of my story is that there's always been someone or something where I've been like, oh, that's interesting. How can I kind of follow it or emulate it? Um, and even when I speak to younger people nowadays, it's, I, I, I tell them like, really think about the people that are either inspiring right, you right now or that you're looking at on social media or that you want to emulate and then start figuring out what's some of the things that they've done. You know, and there's a great book, it's called Steal Like an Artist. Uh, and it just talks about most things and most people that are so-called experts these days. They started off by emulating and copying and then they put their own spin to it. And I think that that's really key advice that you probably don't get taught enough when, when you're young, but it's super important to know that most of the things or problems or whatever it is, it's happened before you and someone's figured out how to overcome it. So when, when you have that type of mentality, it, it makes it a little less stressful, I guess, um, and daunting because you can just be like, well, all right, if I keep going at this and taking those actions, doing these habits, at some point, something's going to tick or I'm going to realise that I hate this thing and then I can move on. So at least I can cross that one off the list. I'm just taking this all in and I've just got all these questions running through my head. No, but I love it. I think what advice would you give around the idea of someone having a preconceived or, you know, our peers out there listening, maybe they've got this preconceived idea of what they want to achieve or what they want to do. You know, maybe they're studying law right now and they're like, oh, I don't even know if I want to be a lawyer, but I think it's, you know, what I should do because that's what society tells us. You know, what advice would you give on that? It's such a tough question, mm. right? Because inherently I'm so big on like follow your passions, mm. but then there's also a practical reality of following your passions. And I would say that if you're uncertain. So when I look back, say doing my business degree, it would be easy to say that oh, I didn't really learn all that much out of it and it wasn't completely aligned with what I wanted to do. But the reality was at that time when I was 20 years old or 17 or whatever it was, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So doing that was by far the better option than doing nothing and then maybe just going off lost and having no direction. So the biggest piece of advice that I would give is just try to limit the amount of doing nothing, you know, because that's the trap that I think also sucks in a lot of younger people. Like I look back even a couple of my mates that were like, I'll figure it out. And then it took them five years, six years, seven years to really find that. Whereas that's the beauty of say structured education, if you look at it, is that it at least gives you something right? Because even still today, even though the world's changing, a degree or a TAFE qualification or an apprenticeship, they still mean something and it puts you in a path and then you can keep figuring it out. So the biggest advice would be is 
if you are at uni and you're going through that process, keep learning and color your university experience in as much as you can with other things. So whether that's joining clubs, it's volunteering, it's going overseas, it's reading additional books, it's starting a business because the environment there, it's perfect. Never in your life again are you going to get to do full-time study and only have to go for 10 hours a week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, there's, so much, there's so much time there. And, and I think the, the, the real strong piece that I always tell younger people about is don't make, it, don't make your decision based on financial outcomes, mm. especially when you're in that age group, right? Like the amount of stories you hear where someone's like, oh, I chose the, the $100,000 salary over the $90,000 salary. It's, like, it's such a short-term trade-off versus working for a company or working with someone or learning from someone that's going to completely change your life. So that, and when you're young, you can take much larger, especially financial and time risks as opposed to when you get older. Mm. Huge. Oh, I love it. Awesome. So I want to dive deeper into now future golf. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, where the idea came from um, and yeah, those kind of early challenges getting it off the ground. Yeah, cool. So so future golf, the idea, so while I was working, uh, I went, it started when I, I went and did a leadership course at NYU, New York University. And one of the big themes that came out of that course was they were talking about the new world and the, the teacher there, Anat, she was saying, she's like, well, right now we all work and we think that work's really secure, right? That we've got this job. But she's like, the reality is, is when you're working, there's one person that's dictating your financial and economic security, right? If you have a fight with your boss or something changes, the strategy moves a different way, that thing that seems so secure actually becomes relatively insecure. And then she said, she's like, look, but when you're an entrepreneur or if you're running your own business, it's the opposite, right? So it can be really insecure at the beginning, but you can have one boss, which is one customer, or you can have a thousand customers or 10,000 customers. And that pyramid completely changes because the quality of what you develop and of your ideas, that, that's the real impact point. And, and I'm like, well, all right, mind blown. I'm like, I was thinking that this was the, the right path and I'll just keep climbing the ladder and keep getting raises and more salary and buy a nicer car and do all that. And then I realized, wow, there's a whole different way of flipping this where you can, instead of worrying about that paycheck and that annual salary, call it, as a measure of success, maybe there's another way here where it's more around actually developing an idea and a passion and building something where, where you're really putting out, you know, that product um, to a market that needs it. And, and then the whole concept around, you know, innovations, everything, ideas, everything. So, so that really stuck to me. Then after that, I read a couple of books like The 4-Hour Workweek, The Lean Startup, The E-Myth. And I'm like, I read those three just by chance. I got all three of them pretty much on the same, same day, same time, same week, I think it was, and devoured them. And I'm like, from there, <laughs> I'm like, I just did a three-year business degree and I've learned more in $45, $50 worth of books than I ever could. And it, pretty much those three books, they give you a blueprint to at least get started. Um, you know, the four hour work week has got the scammiest title name in the world, but that book is phenomenal in terms of, um, being able to start something with really low risk, being able to prioritize your time, manage your time, change the way that you think, you know, things like the 80, 20 rule that there's so much gold in that one book that is amazing. So hopefully the title doesn't scare too many (laughs) people off. Um, but that was kind of what I came back with after that. And then I'll let it sort of filter and I'm like, all right, well, I don't want to start a business that's just financially motivated. Mm. So in the same week, I started two businesses. 
and used the model that was kind of in the four-hour work week in the myth and one was a pub crawl in <laughs> Melbourne and me and a mate of mine, we would go and we would host these pub crawls. It was one of the funnest things we've ever done but then we realised we should have done this when we were like in our early 20s, <laughs> yeah. not mid to late 20s. And then that, the other one was Future Golf which was called Gen Y Golf. Um, and then that was more around combining the, so one was a passion of going out and hanging out with mates and going to pubs. And the other was a passion around playing golf and the future golf one, the Gen Y golf one, it just always drew me more. Right. So even though I had those two and in hindsight, I realized starting two businesses in the same week was a terrible idea when you're coming off like no businesses to two and learned that one pretty quickly. And then the pub crawl kind of just filtered away a little bit. Um, you know, probably wasn't as aligned with with what where we were at the time but then future golf was like all right this this is the one that you know we'll at least use to uh, as an education tool mm. right so it was and trying to practice all the things that was in those books so how do you like i remember drawing out an org structure and it was me and my mate woody and you know it's like all right so <laughs> ceo and president Ali, it's like director of marketing, Ali, ops, yes. Woody. It's like sales manager, you know, and there's there's like 15 different positions there. And it's like they all had job descriptions, but technically like there's two of us doing every single thing and there's no customers, there's no members. There, there's nothing really going about an awesome strategy and org chart kicking along. But, but that was great because, and Facebook was just sort of hitting its stride at that point. So I found like a $50 ad voucher put out a post. It's like, do you want to play golf with younger people? This is the, and the post was literally, this is the idea. You know, we'll play some events. There might be some free rounds. There might, uh, there might be events. We didn't even know if there would be events. Um, but the whole idea is like, do young, you know, I wanted to validate, would younger people want to play golf together? That was kind of, so it was all around building your own tribe, passion. And then, so no one was joining, obviously. I set up like a Wix website, which is this gross hundred dollar, Wix website that had like, so you could buy this membership that didn't exist oh. pretty much from straight up, like from day one uh, on the promise that it was going to turn into something and then you'd get your money back if it didn't. So again, I think I got that one from the four hour work week that you can always do a refund, you know, and say that it's going to launch in a couple of months time. And then, then we went through that and it launched. So the, the Facebook post had a large amount of comments. So I'm like, oh, this could be, this could be something like people want to do it. And then when the site went live, pretty much no one joined up. So there's <laughs> donuts, crickets, <laughs> the, the trot from it. Like yeah. I'm, I'm planning, all right, so I'm going to retire here. Yeah. This is going to be the best. <laughs> yeah. Four you know, hour yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like tick. That book yeah. was easy. Like how easy is business? Yeah. So I can't believe, like, shh, don't tell anyone about this. <laughs> but that obviously, like with all things, you have that optimism and then you go into the valley and you realize, all right, well, we're a long way off here. So um, I convinced five of my mates to join up. So they were the first five members and then probably a couple of days passed by. And then the first person joined up that wasn't a friend. And I like saw this name, Marcus Lancaster. I'm like, oh crap, someone's actually bought this, you know, because at that point it's still not really real. Like mm. I can organize an event for five of my mates. It doesn't have to be anything at this point. But then when Marcus joined up, it's like, all right, crap, we better organize an event. And then we organized the first event, spent money on marketing again and 
it was such a flop. Like there was about 30 people there and I'm like, wow, this is going to be hard. Then the next event after that, we spent even more money that we got from the first event. And then I think there was six people or eight people at that second event. So I'm like, all right, this is sucking. And then we're trying to get partners. So I'm calling up all different courses. They were pretty much laughing. One of the, one of the real industry stalwarts was like, you know, this is the stupidest idea that I've ever heard in my life. You know, stick to your day job. It's never going to work. And that's kind of when I'm like, all right, well, who cares? You know, like it's, it's going to suck at the start, but we still love it. Like even if it's five of us playing golf together, um, that's a win. <laughs> and, and that was kind of the, the origin story behind that. And then it just sort of kept ticking on there. We got the first partner, then we got the second, got it up to four partners for the beginning. So they provided all our members with a free round of golf, which was awesome value and didn't really realize it at the time, but we were kind of creating a very similar thing to like a class pass, but for golf where we were connecting these clubs to a really unique membership base and target market that they wouldn't really get to access, right? So, and that's kind of been the secret source in what we've done over the last five years is the fact that these facilities that uh, do have a real aging uh, consumer base, they now get to access this whole new fresh injection of younger golfers that are now entering the game or returning back to the game. Uh, and then we, we package that up through our memberships, which combine the benefits that the clubs provide us. Um, and then our members get to use those. So it's this beautiful system and it, it, it's amazing because it all works on partnerships. So if our members don't look after the partners, the partners don't stick on all the value in the memberships based on the partners <clears throat> providing that to the members. So it's this cycle of mutual value exchange, which we just love. And then there's community aspects to it. There's the health aspects. So it's just been you know, a real privilege to be able to be involved with something like that, that started off such a small idea, but then to have this passionate group of people, you know, there's like Rowan, our GM, there's probably 60 people that volunteer at events or help out at events all over the country now. And, and there's just like, you can, you can kind of like feel the love towards it more so than a lot of other things that, you know, I've been involved with. And it doesn't really feel like work. Like everyone, you know, they talk about the entrepreneurial journey being really stressful and tough and it is tough. It's challenging. Like there's no doubt about that. It teaches you things that you never would imagine about yourself and how you handle adversity and challenge. But I think that's where the passion piece really comes into gear. It's when it gets really hard and difficult and you don't know where the next dollar is going to come from or how you're going to overcome this next challenge. I think that's where passion just says that, well, quitting's not even really an option at this point. And, and then when you've got passion of the team and the members and the community, then you know that, all right, well, we really don't want to screw this up for everyone that's involved. Oh, it's just so cool to hear, I think, even reading your story, hearing you speak before, and I guess now just hearing it, hearing it again today, it really does consolidate the fact that you are just so passion-driven and the basis of your company and what you've built is based on that. And regardless of, you know, the fact that it was considered such a silly idea to kind of start off with, it is kind of, it's almost that's when you know it's if you can push through, if you can get through, that it's going to actually potentially be something good. Um, I guess I get a question I've got for you is uh, if, you know, our peers out there listening might be thinking, oh, but that that's awesome that he was able to build that and do that. But I've just got this one idea and it, it's been two years now and it hasn't been working out for me. What, you know, do I drop it? Do I keep going? Like what yeah. advice would you give on that? 
Yeah, that's the that's the beautiful gray area of life, right? <laughs> yeah. Of like, do I keep going or do I pull the pin? And mm. I think that's in those 50-50 types of decisions, I just go with intuition. You know, I think that's nearly the only thing because you're flipping a coin at that point, you know, and and it's like that. That thing where you could be so close to digging for gold. You don't know how far away you are. You know, that analogy of like the guy hammering away at the mine and then the next person walks in and just does like three hammers and gets the whole the whole bounty, right? And all I could say with that is that don't look at it from an outcome perspective. Too many people look at business like this is going to be my vehicle, my freedom vehicle. I'm going to earn this much money and then I'll quit my job at this time. I think you need to do the actions and take the work and look at it more as a as a learning experience, especially for the younger people out there that are looking at starting a business. You know, if you get too caught up into getting validation from your customers or from um, a financial perspective, it, it's probably going to be harder to deal with it on a day-to-day basis. So you need to nearly detach yourself from it, from an outcome perspective, but more focus on what you can actually do and learn, right? Because if I look back at our story, the, the core of it came to just finding good people learning things and then implementing those, right? The ideas and all the other bits and pieces, they kind of come together. You know, they're not premeditated. They happen organically. They happen through timing. They happen through listening to your customers. That all kind of takes shape. But the biggest thing I think is just learning about that craft. So whether it's business or it's law or whatever it is, if you're going to do it, I just figure learn as much as you can, get as much information as you can, and then put that into action. Because then you'll get more data points around, all right, are my ideas good? Is my strategy actually working here? Is the marketing campaign good? Do we need to change this? And that's all business is. It's just a reiteration and evolution of changes, you know, like, because it never stays the same. Like for the last five years, we've been trying to figure out like <laughs> a sales funnel process that will just mean that we get X amount of members every single mm-hmm. month. And when, like, that's six yeah. years in, we've been trying to solve the same problem in every business is. It's like, how do I keep getting customers for a low cost per acquisition? Like, that's ultimately, if you're selling a product or a service, that's what it comes down to. Like, they're the two metrics. And, and all you can do is keep trying, trying different things, changing it up. And that's where that innovation piece is. So that would probably be the recommendation to the young I don't know if that was a clear answer or not <laughs> because it is such a complex <laughs> space but I think that's that's what I'd be doing is just taking it to the end of its journey as much as you can mm. um, and then making the decision from there mm. no I love it um, I think my I think what I'm most interested to know is at the time when you were, you know, when you were still in the grunt of it, you were still trying to figure out what is this actually going to be? You maybe still had the pub crawling business on the side. You know, were you working a full-time job at that time? How did you manage your time and how did that work out? Yeah, so the time management bit Mm. was really tricky. I had a one-year-old, so we had a young baby at the time as well. So my wife was super stoked that (laughs) I'd started two two businesses pretty much. One, which was a pub crawl uh, (laughs) with a a baby at home. And yeah, so for me, having a really supportive partner has been a phenomenal um, help. And just none of this would have been possible without Chantal, my wife's support and, and belief in it. Uh, you know, I think I think our partners are the ones when it really comes down to it that, you know, they believe in us when yeah. it's completely imaginary. 
you know, they have faith when it doesn't even exist. So that's really important when there's so many unknowns there. But but going back to that, yeah, like to managing the time, I would stay up till about 2, 3 a.m. every night. So I was a late, late sleeper anyway. And so I'd do the day job, um, do my nine, 10 hours and sometimes more. And then every spare minute that I'd have, I'd either be reading or I'd be trying something, tinkering just with this little passion project. So, and that's what it was for the first two, three years. Like we were really mindful to make sure that it didn't take up too much time. So even when I had, you know, and we were really lucky as well because so many people were passionate about golf. Mm -hmm. A lot of the members were willing to help. So Rowan, who's now our GM, he came up, he's an accountant by trade. He came up and he was, he was member number 30, rocked up. It's like, do you need any help with your finances and accounting? We're like, well, we've got about $50 in the bank, but, <laughs> yeah. but definitely you're offering jump on board. And then he evolved. Like, and just what, like, if I look back, that's been one of the coolest things to see someone like Rose evolution to go from CPA accountant, um, working a nine to five to now leading one of the world's largest communities of younger golfers, just from having that initiative to say, do you need some help? And then he's just the definition of taking action mm. and learning and evolving. Like he's gone from accountant to sales guy to ops guy <laughs> to tech guy to, to just doing everything, right? And, <laughs> and you look at that and it's like, well, you're just set now. It doesn't matter what you do from here on, regardless of whether this succeeds or fails or whatever it becomes. You've just built so many new skills to your, to your armor. But again, going back to the time thing, how to manage that, um, it's really tricky, right? Mm. Um, and that's where you need probably either – flexibility yeah. with with your role you need to map out your blocks of time it becomes a real big thing i think time management is huge you know the 80 20 principle and Pareto's law is massive around trying to find out what are four or five key actions that i can take that are going to give me 80 90 of the result you know and going back to that like I, I still do that every week nowadays like i'll sit there on a sunday for an hour or two review what's just happened last week and then really hone in on, all right, I've got 30, 40, 50, 100 different things that I could do this week. Mm. What, will, what will this look like? And if I look back next Sunday, what's a successful week going to feel like? You know, And generally it's only three to four things. Like I've been logging my days and weeks probably for the last four or five years. I do a little journal in Evernote and it's amazing to look back over that time period and we think that we're doing so much mm. but when you look at things of note in a given week two to three things four things in a given day you might do two to three things that are really impactful in in a given year you know when you, you do that list of the real highlights maybe five to ten different bits and pieces but it feels like a hundred thousand different things have taken place to get there so that ruthless like prioritization and you know there's some cracking books on it like the 80 20 principle essentialism that I think are awesome, especially for younger people to read when they're young. So around how do I control my time, my focus, my energy? And then how do you, I think the next part of that is how do you then align that to your values, right? And then from that perspective, then time management becomes a lot easier because you just know that, okay, I need to, I need to work because this ticks off my freedom, financial security, rent, food goal, family goal. That's a given. So then you don't feel bad about that. You know that that's just part of the process. But then it's like, oh, well, I've got another five hours. Instead of watching Netflix or whatever it is, maybe I'll, you know, launch a new product or research how to run AdWords or whatever that looks like. And then you just keep building that armor. And then for us, it was about three years in. Then it hit the tipping point where it was like, oh, well, now it's time 
where the risks of this are still there, but it's not as big. And then at that point, because that was the other part, like I love my job, you know, it was a fantastic gig. So it's really hard to, it would be a lot easier if you hated what you did and then to make the jump. But yeah, that was, that was kind of that part of that journey. So great. Just so many practical takeaways from today. It's just, it's so cool to hear. Awesome. So, you know, as we come to the close of today's episode, I kind of want to, I've got a couple last few questions for you. Firstly, what would you say is your biggest failure to date? Oh. <laughs> Jeez, there's so many. Right <laughs> there's so many failures. Oh, this one's a good one because we've got the video here. Oh, I love yes. this one. Like, so, so a little while ago, this was probably about four years ago, I'm like, I, I want a small wallet <laughs> and I wanted one with a coin zip because coins, you know, I hated having like the coins sitting around in the pocket and all that. And I think I spent a good year on designing this thing and getting it prototyped, put together just so I could have a wallet that I could use. And then when it did a launch, tried to sell it. <laughs> Uh, used everything else that I'd learned from like Future Golf and all these bits and pieces. I'm like, we'll, we'll put it out there. I'm sure other people want a small wallet with like a coin zip. And it sold four, co- I think four wallets. Like say after all of that time, that investment, the effort, designing yes. it. I think there was something like 680 different emails back and forth to China to get that. <laughs> you know, plan for a shipment of like a thousand wallets to get manufactured. And then luckily though, I did the pre-sale and realized that this was going to be a resounding failure and no one wants this product other than myself. So I've got the wallet still and that was it. So that, that's, a, that's one of them, but oh, so many, so especially like, in the entrepreneurial yeah. space, like just so many failures. Like failures are just part of it. You know, you look at Steph Curry, who's one of the best shooters of all time. Mm. He shoots, uh, I think he, his shooting percentage is like 54%. Mm. So he misses yeah. nearly half the time. And that makes him the best shooter ever, pretty much. You know, and I think that failures like could do a whole episode on just sucking and failing. But that that's just part of it. And I love it. I, I think it's, it's where the growth happens. So if you, if you're going to focus on learning and action, then you really have to then embrace that failure piece and acknowledge it for what it is. So you can't personalize it. You just have to be like, all right, that execution wasn't exactly what I wanted. How do I now learn from that, review it, and then improve on it the next time? Hmm. And I think that's where failure becomes super, super important. And that whole, you know, we're, we're probably growing up in an environment where people are so scared to fail, yeah. especially publicly, mm-hmm. that they just don't take the chance. They're like, I'd rather be invisible and hide away rather than give this thing a crack. Whereas if you look at anyone or anything that is successful or off note, there's always an underlying story of significant failure that's um, sitting behind that. Mm-hmm. So, so I think it's a huge huge thing that probably even the education system needs to really reward is people failing. Like even you look at schools, Mm. it's like, oh, you didn't get an A, Mm. you failed. Like you you were already validating it that you need to be the best rather than actually going and experimenting, failing, and then getting the feedback loop and then improving from that. So, Mm. so I think, yeah. Failure so many. Oh, a lot of work (laughs) to be done. (laughs) Oh, I love it, Ali. Well, look, 
It's been an absolute privilege over the last six, or almost six, I think it is, years in starting Future Golf, you've really evolved as a person and the business has just gone from strength to strength. You know, last year was a huge year for you guys, you and the team. You won the 2019 Telstra Business Awards. You yourself became a 2019 Young Entrepreneur of the Year finalist and also Young Business Leader of the Year finalist. It's absolutely huge to see and just so cool to hear how it all started for you and that you weren't just excelling from day dot, um, which is so great. So I guess my final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value? of pursuing what you're most passionate about? Ooh, well, this one obviously speaks very closely to the heart. I think the value of pursuing what you're passionate about is that it's hard to lose when you're pursuing your passions, right? It's that whole concept of if you're not doing this for a premeditated outcome or you're not doing it, you're doing something for free, something that you just love, that excites you, that you're going to do anyway. You can't lose from doing that. You know, like either way, it's going to be so aligned with who you are. And I think that's where passion really comes in. You know, whether it's sport or music or art or reading or whatever that passion is, is when, like when you look back and you speak to people, the number one thing they said is like, I wish that I spent more time with my family, with my loved ones, playing piano, doing what I really cared about. And I think that that's where passion has to be a core component of it. And, and even going through the process of exploring and finding those passions. You know, like I've been speaking to a couple of our aunties and stuff and just seeing them now in their 50s find and unlock new passions and how much extra value that adds to their life experience, you know, at that point. And I think that that's the other part about passion. It's it's never too late to then find and unlock something new that you really care about. Like golf for me, I only started liking golf when I was 21, Mm -hmm. you know, so it wasn't that I played as a kid or anything like that. Business, I only really started liking that probably over the last three, four years. You know, it wasn't a premeditated passion. So all these things, like, I think just keep finding what you love. And if you can spend time doing what you love with people that you love, I think life's going to be relatively all right. Oh my goodness, I love it. Ali, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. We've had a blast. Where can people learn more about you and Future Golf? Yeah, cool. So Future Golf is futuregolf.com.au and on all the socials. Um, I've got a, a little website, alitarai.com as well. Um, pretty active on LinkedIn at the moment, liking that as a platform. So find me on there. Awesome, amazing. We'll link them up in the show notes. Ali, you've been awesome. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst 
your peers. 